0: Hugh, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to be on.
0: Yeah, I enjoyed reading just a couple articles ahead of the release of your first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, which is an account of the city um, as far as like the forgotten queer history. And I had never really thought about Brooklyn and and a forgotten queer history. So let's go back to just even your own, you know, individual interests in queer Brooklyn before we know Brooklyn as what it is today.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's actually kind of funny that you say that, because I had been living in Brooklyn for, I'd say, about 13 years before I had this sudden epiphany, one moment where I was like, you know, I know a lot about queer history. I was a women's studies major in college. I've lived in the city for many years, and I know nothing about the queer history of Brooklyn. Uh, I sort of let the histories of Chelsea and Greenwich Village and Harlem and, to a lesser extent, the East Village sort of fill in for the entire history of queer New York. And I was living in an apartment in Bushwick, and I was working on this organization I'd started called the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History. And I said to myself, well, you know, okay, so I just obviously have a hole in my education. I'm going to go to the library. I'll pick up the book, because I assume there was a book, and I'll learn this history. (laughs) And I was shocked to discover there was no book about queer Brooklyn, and that books about queer New York tended to not have very much about the outer boroughs. They were mostly focused on Manhattan, and books about the outer boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island, uh, didn't have a lot about queer history. And so I started off by just suddenly coming to this realization that I did not know very much myself and wanting to learn more. And because I was a journalist and a curator and I worked in this organization, as mentioned, the Pop-Up Museum, I was able to sort of of glean little bits of information. I would be interviewing someone about something else and I would ask them, you know, oh, do you happen to know anything about the lesbian history of Brooklyn? Or I'd be reading a book and they would mention, you know, this gay artist who lived in Brooklyn in the nineteen teens, and I would kind of note it down Uh, So for the first couple of years that I was doing this, I I didn't really think that I was writing a book. I didn't really know exactly what I was doing at all. I was just so interested in the topic and so kind of just gobsmacked by the idea that I had forgotten this entire borough in understanding the history of New York and and how obvious it seemed to me in the present moment where Brooklyn is such a a thriving cultural space that we talk about, that there's a Brooklyn aesthetic uh, and that we think of the world or at least the history of New York through a Brooklyn lens in a way that was never done before. And so for me, it was really a process of, of coming to a realization and then trying to figure out, one, why I didn't know this information, and two, what information was there to be known. Uh, and so I was doing that for about three years before I, grant, I got a grant from the New York Public Library uh, to the Martin Duberman Scholarship, which is for doing LGBT research, to really conceptualize this into a project about uh, queer Brooklyn history and to make a, a book proposal.
2: So, tell us a bit about the like the earliest days when you know all the research you did, where would you start to say some sort of queer life in Brooklyn started? And how? Well, I think it's a good question. Uh,
1: what I say to people is that queer life in Brooklyn, as in most places, starts where there are jobs that people who were um, visibly queer or who thought of themselves as queer were able to have, right? So in Brooklyn, that moment comes a little bit after the uh, found, uh, the creation of the Erie Canal in 1825. That's really what takes Brooklyn from a small sort of sleepy Dutch hamlet on uh, the, you know, edge of Long Island and turns into an urban center on par with Uh, Manhattan, which was that they didn't join together until the late 1800s. I think about 1898 or so, somewhere around there, they become New York City. Uh, But when the Erie Canal opens, it just revolutionizes Brooklyn. Suddenly there are jobs, there are industries, there are places to live, people are moving there. Uh, And so the first moment that I kind of start off with in the book is Walt Whitman's publication of Leaves of Grass in 1855. Because What's really interesting for me about Whitman is not just that he himself was attracted to men and was pretty vocal about that, uh, you can read it in his poetry, but that through his poetry, we get a glimpse into a world of working-class white men who are having sex with other men. Mm -hmm. Uh, The word homosexual hadn't even been coined yet, you know, they didn't have this identity in the way that we do today, but we can see Whitman working out, uh, particularly in what are called the Calamus Poems. He works out these ideas of words to call people who love members of the same sex and love tokens, such as the calamus plant that should be shared between members of the same sex. And so while we don't know a lot about these other men, uh, particularly because most of them were working class and they didn't either have the ability or chance to preserve their own stories, Whitman gives us this view into this world. And we know the world is much bigger than him because Why would he be writing about, you know, the love tokens that men should be exchanging to each other if he didn't have someone to exchange them with? Mm. So that's kind of where my book
0: starts. You know, a lot of times when we think about LGBTQ history, uh, a lot of historians will like to talk about specific individuals who have made a contribution or, uh, you know, particularly the life that they lived. In your research, are there any individuals that you can point out um, that were a part of, you know, queer Brooklyn, well, the forgotten history part and not the <laughs> super <laughs> uber queer part that it is today.
1: I mean, there are so many, you know, and what I what I say a lot about Brooklyn is that it's uh, for a lot of people, it's a temporary space or a space they return to over and over again. And so a lot of the people I discuss in my book have both a life in Brooklyn and life in other places. Yeah. Uh, one of the ones that I love the most, uh, just I think because the research into her was so difficult and so exciting. Therefore, the woman named Florence Hines, uh, Florence Hines was the highest paid black Female vaudeville performer in the late 1800s, and she was a drag king, Mm. and she performed all around the country. She performed uh, in Coney Island in New York City, uh, in Brooklyn, with a group or a a program called the Creole Show, which is one of the most important uh, shows, uh, sort of a landmark in Black theatrical productions in America, because it took the traditional minstrel format and gave it a major twist. Where traditionally in minstrel, minstrel performances. Black people were shown as performing an authentic version of Southern life. They were sort of these happy, simple Black people living on a Southern plantation who just happened to do music or perform a song or perform a skit. And what the Creole show did was actually show Black artists as artists who were performers. They were not showing this idealized, mytho-historical, racist idea of what Black life was like in the South. They were performing Real art, and Florence Hines was the interlocutor for that show. She was the the central narrator, um, which I think, and, and you know, it's hard to exactly say this, but a lot of sources say that she's most likely the first woman to ever perform that role. And she also had, through this show, we know a little bit about her life because. You know, black performers, uh, particularly in, in the U.S. in the late 1800s, but, you know, traditionally and historically and still today, don't get the attention that white performers do. And so while a lot of white drag kings and drag queens in the 1800s have their lives thoroughly documented in the press, black performers did not get the same level of attention. But Florence Hines did, in part because the Creole show was so big. It traveled for five years up and down the Eastern keyboard. And we know that at one point, um, I believe it was in Cincinnati, she got into a public bite with one of her co-stars and an article was written about it that, you know, alleges, you know, this relationship between the two women and they performed together for many years. Um, and so it kind of points to not only was she a drag king, so she's a performer who makes a living through this kind of queer kind of performance, but she also seemed to have a queer life herself. Unfortunately, very little is known about her life in general. Uh, There are a couple of uh, black newspapers, the Indiana Freeman and the Chicago Defender, that chronicle some bits of her life, uh, but it took a really long time. I've only been able to find one photo of her compared to a lot of her contemporaries who had many photos or drawings of them published in newspaper accounts. Some of them even had their own personal promotional materials, uh, women like Ella Wesner, uh, Annie Hindle. They kind of worked at the same level. They were forming the same venues, performing the same acts. Uh, But those white drag kings are much better documented today than women like Florence Hines. And so for me, it was really exciting to get to research her history, see where she came to Brooklyn and what kind of role Brooklyn played in her life.
2: It's always always exciting to learn kind of highlights and, and forgotten folks. Let me ask kind of the flip side of that. What were the darkest moments for LGBTQ life in Brooklyn over the years?
1: Well, I'll say that there's a, a big turn in LGBT life nationwide, but um, particularly you see it in Brooklyn right around the Depression. Uh, Up through the 1920s, you get this sort of growing queer world uh, that's expansive and exciting. And there's a lot of interaction between queer and straight people. You don't see very many what we would think of today as gay bars, but you see in Brooklyn a lot of spaces that were open sexually. Um, But with the coming of the Depression, you get these couple of major changes, uh, some of them nationwide, some in the city, that really crack down and they start to push gay life to be really separate from straight life and to... Uh, up the penalties for straight people who participate in any kind of queer life, whether that's having queer sex while thinking of themselves as straight or going to a queer bar or seeing a movie with gay characters in it. And it also starts to punish gay people and tell them you are a specific type of person defined by your sexuality and your sexuality is worse. And so the points that I really look at are uh, the passing of the Shackno Bill in New York City, which I believe is 1924, which is the first bill to start tracking gay sex and criminalizing gay sex. Spec- Sex between men specifically. Uh, a little later, you get um, the Hayes Movie Code. That's in the 1930s. And that says that there can be no more presentation of uh, non normative sexualities in movies. Uh, before that, you have this pansy craze, and it's kind of exciting. You see lots of gay men, particularly effeminate gay men, in movies from the late 20s and early 30s. And with the Hayes Code, that is just no more. Uh, the RKO Vaudeville Circuit in the 30s bans the use of the word pansy. Uh, and a couple of other, maybe even queer, uh, from any of their acts. So again, it's trying to sort of push gay people out of public life. Um, And then the end of Prohibition really sets the stage because before that, straight white men's recreational choices going out drinking were punished on the same level that women's choices, people of color, queer people. So they went to the same bars. But once Prohibition ends and certain people are allowed to drink in places that are not going to be raided by the cops. You get this real differentiation between gay and straight bars, and it opens up uh, the world that we see, you know, come the 60s and 70s, where the mob controls all the gay bars because they had controlled them during Prohibition, and then they lose the straight bars when Prohibition ends. Hmm. So all of this is some of the darker moments that you really start to see getting codified. Now, World War II acts as a little stopgap in that growing homophobia, right, that the country's really focused on the war. The war introduces a lot of people to queer sexualities. Uh, and that, that kind of changes things a little bit, but immediately after the war ends, we go right back to this huge clampdown and you get the Lavender Scare, these attacks on gay people that go hand-in-hand hand with the attacks on communists from Joe McCarthy. Uh, you get a lot of psychologists telling people that homosexuality is the root of basically all criminality or all sex-related criminality. Um, and so that that's really some of the darkest moments. And it, it's funny because oftentimes people will look back in history and they'll say, oh, World War II, that's when, you know, gay people first started to find each other in America. And and so in my research, I see that as sort of an end moment (laughs) or the beginning of the end. And a lot of times it gets talked about as this flourishing when gay bars start opening up and you start seeing, you know, gay organizations. uh, But in the longer timeline, if you really look at it, what's happening is that those gay organizations and gay bars are opening up because gay people are being forced out of all other public space
0: hmm. I'm curious to know kind of how when when the Stonewall riots happened, you know, how did that impact uh, Brooklyn queers?
1: I talked to actually one of my favorite interviews in the book is talking to a, one of the Stonewall vets, uh, a guy named Mike Boyce, who talked to me about being 18 or maybe 17 at the time of the riots. And he said, by that point, you didn't go to Brooklyn if you were queer. You came from Brooklyn to Manhattan to find a place to have a life. Mm -hmm. There were some little bits of uh, queer community left in Brooklyn, Uh, particularly Brooklyn Heights had a a really strong queer community. I would say it was the most queer individual neighborhood in Brooklyn historically. And some of that is maintained up through the time of the Stonewall Riots. Uh, The area of the Brooklyn Heights Promenade is still a cruising ground. There's still some prominent artists who live there, but it's very sub rosa, very hidden. Uh, Marty said to me that, you would go there once just to know what it was, but it was strictly a local theme. And he said to me that you no longer would go. Queer people were not safe in Coney Island, which historically had been one of the other neighborhoods that was really accepting of queer people. You do get some new things starting right around the time of the Stonewall riots. There are a couple of gay bars in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, one of, I think, the sort of most important queer institutions for people of color in Brooklyn, the Starlight Lounge, opens up, I want to say it's about 1962, Uh, so a little bit before the Stonewall riots, although it's not uh, exclusively a queer space uh, in the 60s. It kind of becomes one later. Um, But so for those people who were sort of participating in queer life in Brooklyn, the Stonewall riots I don't think had a huge effect. For the people who were not yet participating in queer life in Brooklyn but may themselves have been queer, the riots in many ways announced Manhattan as the place where you came to have a gay life. And they may have already thought that anyways because they're coming to the village um, but it, I think in a lot of ways, for a lot of people, the Stonewall Riots sort of said queer history in New York City is synonymous with the history of Greenwich Village. Uh, and, and kind of so it doesn't have this huge effect on people living in Brooklyn. But I think it has an effect on how we think about the queer history of New York City, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. I, so if someone is listening to this and they're planning on heading to New York City in the f- near future, uh, can you give them a quick uh, guide for their Brooklyn gay history tour they might want to make when they go there, sites to see, things that, that really h- held, uh, you know, historical importance for the queer community there.
1: One of the saddest things is that a lot of the actual buildings have been torn down and destroyed. Uh, I, te- I chronicled this in the, the last chapter of my book, but particularly Robert Moses, uh, in changing the New York City landscape, destroyed a lot of what was Queer Brooklyn. But the places that I go to a lot that I think of are being really important the Lesbian History Archives in Park Slope. I mean, not only are they themselves a piece of history, but the history that they contain inside their walls is incredible. Uh, And the way in which they do it, the mode in which they operate as a queer community organization doing history, I think is so important. And they're open to anyone. And I highly recommend if you're coming to Brooklyn, go spend an afternoon there uh, and learn some of the history, meet some of the people associated with it, volunteer if you want. They're absolutely wonderful. Uh, some of the other locations that I think are, are really worth sort of noting and returning to, uh, Coney Island, as I said, you know, it had this huge queer history. And while a lot of the places themselves are not there anymore, mm-hmm. I think Coney Island still exists in the mind as a kind of subversive space where you can go and have uh, a different kind of fun. So I think it's a really fun place for you are on vacation to go and think about queer history, uh, and queer lives. Um, other spots that I think are, are definitely important, um, the whole of Brooklyn Heights. I mean, you could do, there are actually, if you uh, Google, there are a couple queer tours of the Heights. Uh, I think some self-made walking ones. There's one called an impalpable sustenance, which is based on the quote by Walt Whitman that I actually commissioned for the pop-up museum, uh, by these two women artists. And it's an audio tour. Um, so yeah, so I, I would highly recommend that folks do that. I think it is a really fun, really interesting tour to take. Um, there's a, a space that no longer exists, but the building is still there in Dumbo, which was called Dumba, <laughs> which uh-huh. is a queer artist collective in the late 90s and early 2000s that started off as a particularly, uh, specifically anti-capitalist queer arts organizing group and then eventually morphed into an all-people-of-color queer artist commune. Uh, Rashad Newsom actually lived there briefly. Uh, John Cameron Mitchell filmed some scenes from Short Bus there. Mm-hmm. Um so, I would highly recommend stopping by. I think today, though, it's like a high end florist or something like that. <laughs>
0: uh, Michelle Meow with John Zipper. We are speaking to Hugh Ryan, who's the author of When Brooklyn Was Queer. The book comes out next year, uh, Hugh, I, I, I have to ask, I mean, you know, lots of people are talking about Brooklyn um, being gentrified and the displacement of people of color. I would imagine that that obviously also impacts the LGBTQ community. I'd love to hear your thoughts as someone who has looked into the history of Brooklyn from the LGBTQ lens of kind of how like we piece that, I would imagine throughout the the years that displacement had happened it, just like you had mentioned it's happened over the years again and again and again
1: yeah no absolutely it's, it's endless cycles of displacement uh, one of the stories i think about a lot is uh, this house called february which during world war ii was one of the most important um, places for arts literature in all of the country and it was in brooklyn uh, in kind of a shabby part of the neighborhood of brooklyn heights which had been very fancy and then kind of gone downhill And it exists for about five years, during which time uh, W.H. Auden lives there, Gypsy Rose Lee lives there, Carson McCullers lives there, Richard Wright lives there, all of these famous actors, writers, um, set designers, intellectuals. And then at the end of that five years, it gets taken through eminent domain and destroyed to make way for an on ramp to the BQE, Uh, you know, because it was a poor neighborhood and because Robert Moses could exercise his power. Uh, to destroy the neighborhood. <laughs> and, and a lot of times you see those decisions getting made. So the same thing happens at Coney Island. Robert Moses, again, in the 1930s and 40s, starts saying, this is a place where poor people go. It's kind of disgusting, it's kind of awful. It's it's He doesn't necessarily single out queer people, but that's sort of part of the, the problem. It's, it's, it's gross, you know, it's sexual, it's dirty, it's poor. And so he uses his powers to destroy the existing businesses and the existing community and try to replace them. Um, and so you see this happening. Over and over and over again in Brooklyn's history, um, Dumba, the great example. It was an artist co- collective when Dumbo Dumbo was a very uh, forgotten space and had a lot of queer artists living in that area. And then, as soon as the rents go up, everybody gets forced on out. Um, And A lot of times you'll see references to queer people, say, gentrifying Park Slope, and definitely that's part of the story, too, that there are moments where queer people come in as part of gentrification. Uh, But the more that I look at this history, the more that I see that the first queer communities in Brooklyn were really working-class queer communities, and that they themselves are subject to gentrification over and over again. Um, And that's just uh, historical truth, unfortunately.
2: I'm, this is more the, I guess, the technical side of, uh, you got the grant to do the book. Uh, Any, what were, I guess, the biggest surprises when you got to doing the, the, you really digging into things and doing the interviews? What, what, did you kind of know where you were going to go with it or did it take Mm -hmm. a different path as you got into it?
1: I had no idea where I was going to go with it. (laughs) That was definitely a case of finding evidence and figuring out what the evidence meant afterwards. Uh, At first, I was just sort of collecting the pieces. I would say two of the biggest surprises for me kind of came early on and helped me to understand what I was seeing. One of those was that until 1940, Brooklyn was 96% white. Wow. And that was shocking. I think of Brooklyn as being this incredibly diverse space, Uh, For people of all different ethnicities, nationalities, immigration statuses, that was not true historically. Brooklyn was much more conservative, uh, particularly when it came to race and ethnicity, than was Manhattan. Uh, And now, you know, queer lives often can provide a kind of um, uh, jump over different uh, barriers, structural barriers, different inequalities around race, around class, around gender, uh, but they still exist. You know, they they doesn't negate them entirely. And so when I discovered it first, I'm seeing all this um, history of of white people, particularly white men in Brooklyn. I was like, well, am I just not looking in the right places? What am I looking at? And I started to look at the larger demographics of Brooklyn and to understand Brooklyn as a space that was already um, divided up by racism and misogyny before there was ever a queer community to talk about. So that was really fascinating to me. And the other thing that really helped me to understand that was kind of this shocker, uh, was that I was seeing all of this evidence of queer lives, particularly the earliest queer lives, in waterfront neighborhoods, uh, places like Red Hook, Coney Island, um, downtown Brooklyn, Vinegar Hill. And I thought, oh, what is this? What is it about these spaces? The one part of it was that they were already the oldest parts of Brooklyn, so it made sense that the oldest queer history would be there. But the other thing was that these were spaces that had jobs, and not just jobs, but jobs where you didn't have to necessarily still live with your family to have them or have an introduction from your family, jobs where you could be a single man or a single woman and not um, seem strange jobs where you could maybe even be a little uh, gender non-normative for the period and not be questioned. And I realized that a lot of this is about economics, that queer lives and queer communities are established where queer people can work and live safely.
0: Uh, You know, one of the things I loved about um, reading the article, I loved the perspective, the way you came at it, which was, you know, Yeah, Brooklyn, a a neighborhood, a city, or I'm sorry, an area of where I've lived, or that I do live, and what about its history? What about its LGBTQ history? So I wonder, you know, after this book has been released, if there's going to be another new neighborhood that (laughs) you might be interested (laughs) in writing about, if you think about it, what if we did that to like every single neighborhood in America, we would have so many stories to tell.
1: I mean, I would absolutely love that. You know, uh, I come from a small town uh, in Westchester called Irvington, and I'm always interested in the queer history of the town. There actually turns out to be a lot of it. I think the more you look in any one place, the more history you'll find. Uh, but my particular interest right now, which you know may or may not become my next book, but I certainly hope that it will be, is actually a place called the Women's House of Detention, which was an 11-story women's prison in Greenwich Village from about 1934 to 1972, so it existed for 40 years. It's almost completely forgotten today, but it was filled with queer women, um, and it had many, It had a couple of books written about it that talk about the lesbian history of the space, and also it was surrounded by queer women. Women would gather outside of the prison to call up to their imprisoned lovers, and so in that way, it helped to define Greenwich Village as a queer space, and when it was torn down in the 70s, it helped make the way for the gentrification of Greenwich Village that helped to make it less of a queer space. And so I find that to be a really interesting moment because it, again, highlights the fact that there are queer people who are not upper class, who are not, um, you know, the the sort of histories that we get and we sort of see receive the sort of uh, a great man idea of history where the only queer people we see are, you know, Kings or famous artists. Um, And I really want to sort of look at how that's problematic and, Kind of look at the history of this prison, the women who were inside it, the women who were involved in closing it down, uh, how it affected the village, how it affected our ideas of of queerness, and also how it sort of puts together a really strong and cogent argument uh, for uh, prison abolition from a queer viewpoint.
0: Well, Hugh, thank you so much for spending time with us here on the program, on the Michelle Miao Show with my co-host John Zipper, and uh, the book. I can't wait for it to be released and to learn a whole lot more. And if the story of the detention center becomes a book, please come back on the show.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I would love that. And if anyone's interested, When Brooklyn is Queer is available for pre-order now through Amazon or if you want to go through an independent through Greenlight Bookstore. And I am super excited to talk about Queer Brooklyn. So if anyone who's listening has thoughts or ideas or other Queer Brooklyn history moments they want to share, I urge them to please be in touch.
0: The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this.